0: Yesterday I officiated a wedding in Ohio uh, and the wedding went very well. Bride and groom seemed pleased with the service uh, and I was enjoying a conversation with a relative of the bride at the reception and he really appreciated the liturgy and said I'd never been into anything like that before. He used the words fittingly solemn, it was fittingly solemn and I suppose that's better than frivolous. Uh, so. And he asked me about my own denominational journey, and he asked, why did you become an Anglican? And I actually had an answer. I had an answer. Many of you know that I didn't grow up in the church, at least not in my earliest days. My parents at the time were not church-going folks. That came along later, at least from my mother. But uh, my grandmother would occasionally take me to church, and more frequently as I uh, got closer to my teenage years. And I went to a Congregationalist Church uh, that uh, was known as the United Church of Christ, though it's changed denominations, that perished subsequently. Uh, So I grew up there, and then in college I uh, went to a variety of non-denominational and Pentecostal churches for several years. And I have to say, I benefited from each of those experiences. Uh, I uh, I think it's very, very dangerous, by the way, to abreact against the denomination of your youth. Unless it's a cult. Um, I think it's very dangerous to abreact. In fact, it's much better to look upon your own personal history with a note of appreciation. Uh, rather than um, self-flagellating degradation. Uh, So I I really did enjoy various aspects of my own Christian heritage and uh, formation, but uh, the reason that I eventually fell into this tradition uh, could be summarized in one word, roots, roots, or rootedness. Uh, see, I, I grew up in, uh, in a home that was ravaged by divorce, as many homes are. I, I grew up also a child of postmodernism and deconstructionism, where it was in vogue is still in vogue to, to take apart uh, all sorts of social institutions, from religion to politics to family, and many of us have been affected by that movement, whether we're aware of it or not. And so I felt like my life, in many, many ways, was being torn apart, and I needed something stabler than um, my experience. And uh, so our ancient Anglican liturgy with all of its um, uh, predictability, what some would even call banal predictability, gave me a a sense of rootedness, of, of steadiness in an unsteady world. It gave me a place of reliability and nourishment week after week that was extremely valuable to me. The predictability of it was medicinal and healing for me. Now, maybe it's not for you. I'm just speaking about my own experience. It gave me a sense of Reformation theology with, al- with also the long history of the church. And those two things united together and provided uh, me with some roots. Now, the benefit of this is that Anglican Christians tend not to be the slaves of fashion. We do not get easily carried away by hysteria, frenzies, uh, whether political or spiritual. Our creeds, confessions, and Book of Common Prayer liturgy give us roots, roots that stabilize, roots that nourish. And I wish I could say that we Anglicans are geniuses that invented that concept, that rootedness is good for you, but we, alas, did not. Uh, That's not only part and parcel to ancient understandings of of a tribe and history, it's it's especially prominent in Israel's own theology. Uh, So much so that Israel cobbled together in its history a large collection of songs and prayers that, that would root them as a nation in truth and express things to God collectively in worship. And so uh, we know uh, that collection. We know uh, the the name of it. It's the book of Psalms, sometimes called the Psalter. Now, you may know, too, that the book of Psalms is the largest book in the Bible. Uh, It has 150 different psalms, individual psalms within it that sprung up over a history of 1,300 years. It's quite an accomplishment and quite a collection. Now, if you are new to the Bible or new to the Christian religion, let me just define some terms. What are the psalms themselves? Some people ask, what's the genre here? What kind of literature are we talking about? Are they hymns to be sung, poems to be recited, or prayers to be spoken? The answer is yes, they are those things. A psalm is a sacred hymn or poem Often used in Israel's public worship. These were very often, almost always, public documents. Sometimes people might use them privately, but they were usually institutionally oriented for public worship. People singing, speaking together as one body. To put it another way, the Psalms were the book of common prayer and hymnal for the Old Covenant. Uh, And they, because they're lyrically significant and they have a a hymn-like quality, they're artistic. They're artistic. They're filled with all sorts of things we would expect from poems and hymns, like parallelism, repetition, sometimes rhyme schemes, chiasms, where the theme of the beginning of the psalm, arrives again at the end of the psalm they have a rich and vibrant use of imagery with a, a goal in mind the goal is that these words these sentiments these concepts would get lodged inside the soul and become a part of you that it wouldn't just be something um, uh, that that you went through as an empty motion but that these things would form the people of God as a worshiping uh, group right Now, I will give you, and all of the preachers will give you, more details about the construction of psalms and the beautiful poetic notions of psalms as the series rolls on. But I just wanted to give you those few comments along with this one. The psalms were composed by a variety of authors. King David is said to, or there are attributed to him, 73 psalms. Uh, Asaph, that's David's worship leader, and his sons wrote 12 of them. The sons of Korah, they were priests, clergy, they wrote 11. Moses wrote one, Solomon wrote two. A guy named Ethan wrote one, just had to throw that in there. Um, We're related, old family friend, and 50 of them are anonymous. Uh, And we're going to be going through uh, several psalms that have various themes. The themes of creation, themes of fallenness, themes of repentance, themes of anger, themes of enemies, themes of forgiveness. And we'll be talking about how Israel expresses herself to her God through these inspired words. And we'll be expressing ourselves to God through those same words in our worship service. But I thought it would be. Very apt to begin at the beginning with Psalm 1. There's a misprint, an unfortunate misprint in your bulletin that is my fault that says Psalm 100, I lied to you, it's Psalm 1. And we'll be preaching on this psalm for two weeks. I'll be talking about the parts of this psalm and uh, Chad next week will be talking about how uh, this psalm can be lived into by all of us. So I want to talk about Psalm 1 because in many ways it functions, Psalm 1, as a prologue to the entire Psalter. Uh, It functions as a prologue because it both asks and answers the question, how is life rightly oriented before God? Well, this psalm expresses the right orientation of life, which informs, of course, the rest of the Psalter for a worshiping community. Uh, I would, by the way, go into the Hebrew of this psalm, uh, but I don't actually have that capacity, even if I can muddle my way through, except to say it is one of the most, in terms of cadence and the way language sounds and feels, one of the most sophisticated things ever written. And if you're interested in learning more about that, talk to Julie Moeller at the college, and she would be happy to sit down with you and do a much better job than I could do from this pulpit. But this Psalm 1 is a psalm of polarities. It's a psalm of polarities that contrasts both the righteous And the wicked and I'd like to walk through the psalm uh, together with uh, you so let's uh, look at this psalm it begins blessed is the man now let's stop right there (laughs) blessed the first word of this psalm friends is a good word but also a biblically significant word blessing that is to say the book of psalms all 150 psalms are bookended in the beginning least, by the word blessing. It introduces itself to us, this whole book, by pronouncing a blessing on us. Blessed is the man. Now, what does blessing mean? Usually, in the Bible, blessing means something like God taking the original Edenic bliss of creation and injecting it into your life and your situation. That is, shalom, abundance, happiness, fulfillment. You functioning the way you were designed to function is blessing. And sometimes you have to see it and then you recognize it. I saw it yesterday at this wedding where I saw this bride and this groom grinning from ear to ear, staring at each other the whole time, barely able to get through their vows they were so in love. That is blessedness. Blessedness is, uh, I I was just talking to somebody who is finally making a move to Austria, they went to Austria twice in their life, fell in love with the food, the people, the culture, the beer, and they're going back. For them, Austria is a bit of blessedness. Uh, For some of you, the first time you held your newborn child, well that's blessedness. Blessedness is when you function as you ought to function in that original design of creation where you are flourishing as you function. Uh, and blessing um, is, of course, not invented. The word is not invented by the author of this psalm. Blessing goes back to Genesis 1. It's uh, the genius of God that he uh, not only creates, but then blesses, in turn, what he creates, particularly at the moment where he creates his image bearers, male and female in his image and likeness. He doesn't just say, be fruitful and multiply. First, he blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply multiply. Now what's fascinating, if you know your early chapters of Genesis, your early biblical history, blessing doesn't last very long, right? Blessing gets uh, gets overthrown by another word. Uh, blessing turns to curse very quickly. After the um, satanic lure is offered and Adam and Eve sink their teeth into the dark sacramental fruit and the unmaking of creation begins, uh, God pronounces judgment curses on the serpent, the woman, and the man. And so the word curse seems to, at least for a time, supplant the word blessing. And they are all cursed with nearly the same thing, that is, eventual death. That now human beings and the serpent that lured them in are cursed with expiration. And so you would think, after Genesis 3, that God would, by all rights, give up on the human race. You know? Uh, that he, he gave us everything. We rejected it all for personal advancement and he leaves us on our way, but he doesn't. Instead, he invades our lives again in this text by giving us the word blessed. Blessed is the man. In other words, Psalm 1 begins with resurrecting the blessing that even within a fallen world filled with, as this psalm will tell us, the ungodly, the sinful, the scornful, a tortured, in many ways terrible world, God still pronounces blessings on people. Favor, fulfillment, you functioning as you ought to function, that that has not been eradicated from human experience. It's right here from the very beginning of this psalm. Sin, as dark, devious, and overwhelmingly powerful as it is, cannot eradicate the favor of a quite determined God. That he comes to make his blessings flow, you know it, far as the curse is found. So, Some of us have at times in life felt overwhelmed by the doom of the world, by the doom of our given contexts, whether we've had an abusive family, we're part of a dehumanizing work environment, uh, we happen to live within a crazy cultural moment, uh, or we have a, a, a circle of friends that keeps damaging us, sometimes willfully. We can rightly ask, is there any hope for me? Is there any hope for me within this darkened landscape? Well, there is with a God who declares people to be blessed. And right from the onset of this psalm, blessing is possible, even within a fallen world. And so, blessed is the man. But then he talks about this blessed man's context. This is verse 1 again. Blessed is the man who has not walked in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners, and has not sat in the seat of the scornful. Um. Now, note the different postures in this text. Notice what's happening, or what's in fact not happening to the blessed man. Walked, stood, sat. There is a progression, in fact a degression here, a deliberate degression, that motion over time slows down. That's what sin does. Sin lulls us from a place of movement into motionlessness. By the way, the the satanic goal, satanic energy, darkness, sin, the goal of it is not to toy with you like Zeus would toy with an unexpecting victim. No, the goal is to own you, to make you useless, to get you from a movable person to one that is motionless. And notice, too, uh, the the different companions, the different companions that would very eagerly uh, align themselves with the blessed man. Uh, The counsel of the ungodly, the way of sinners, the seat of the scornful. In other words, a blessed man has an unblessed context. That when God blesses you, he blesses you within a context that very often wars against you and the blessing that you have. So you can't sort of expect to own or live under blessing without lures everywhere that would entice you to throw away the blessing. Uh, You know, that we are surrounded by fellow walkers, standers, and sitters whose goal it is, is to corrupt. By the way, that's of course true for us too, because the context that you are walking in day after day is darker than you think it is. Just as we ourselves within our own hearts are are darker and bleaker than we think we are, so is our context. So is our context. I mean, do you really want to know what people say about you behind your back? I never would. If I ever found out, I I would have a stroke immediately. (laughs) And likely you would too. Uh, The things are actually far more grim than we think they are Uh, and you know we're often inundated by people that are trying to twist us in certain directions. You know the newest thing or maybe it's not the newest thing because I'm always about two years behind everybody else but one of the newer things is to is to be an influencer. This is a major goal for people by the way. They used to want to become a doctor or an attorney but now they want to become an influencer and I guess that means that um, they show up on social media uh, and they want you to buy a product right? They want you to buy um, the khakis that I destroyed last week that I told you about or whatever it is. Um, but th- they're trying to sort of influence maybe what you purchase, how you feel about what you purchase, or what you think about what you purchase, but in the end it's usually about the money. Um, but our culture is in- inundated with influencers, with tech giants, with, uh, with um, massive, massive influential socio- social media platforms, and part of their intention is to refashion you into slaves. They want to refashion me into a slave. Because slaves are uh, easy to control, right? They want us to shut up and keep buying stuff. They want to alter us and own us in many, many ways. And, uh, and, and in, a, in a way that these great apparatuses that exist, these things that uh, seek to form us and shape us in their image and likeness could make us feel good about ourselves. I mean, everybody wants you. Everyone wants you. Everybody wants your loyalty. But not everybody deserves your loyalty. There's only one who does, because he's also promised not to be a source of vexation to your life, but one of healing and restoration, while everybody else makes promises that they cannot deliver upon. Uh, by the way, uh, this blessed man who has sought not to walk into the counsel of the ungodly or the way of sinners or the seat of the scornful, um, uh, this, this person gives us a, a hopefully a sense of sobriety just because of the recognition of different groups that want to pull us down, pull us away. Friends, we ought not to overestimate our non-persuadability. You, friendships, the people with whom we are connected, really do matter. And can influence influence us a great deal. We can be very easily uh, lured by the siren's call of conformity. This is why uh, St. Jude in the New Testament, it's it's written, um, Have mercy with fear. Have mercy with fear, realizing that you could be easily persuaded in all sorts of dim directions. And so this is the context of the blessed man who who is tempted, of course, and the opportunities are there to walk, uh, to stand, to seat. Uh, himself with um, people of of dubious intent. But then enter the word of God. Enter the word of God, which makes all the difference. This is verse 2. But his delight, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he will meditate day and night. In other words, the blessed man is not a non-listener. He is a listener to the right information source. So there's lots of people that are offering, I'm sure, all sorts of counsel, whether they're standing, uh, uh, walking, or seated. um, seated. But what he is learning from is the, the great truths of the Mosaic Law. Now, we know as New Covenant Christians we are not under the Mosaic Law, but we as Christians still benefit from its moral wisdom. Now, the secret to blessedness is listening. The secret to blessedness is listening, to taking something in, Not just listening in a facile way, but listening in an integrated way. Uh, That's the secret to blessedness. It is not to listen to the mob, nor is it to listen to the self, though trust in the self is the new messianic vision for many people. Um, It is to um, listen to the verticality of God, the word of God as it enters your own framework. Um, uh, uh, This is uh, what differentiates the blessed man from the unrighteous man, uh, what we listen to what we listen to. The blessed man has an auditory preference. He listens to the Word of God that in this text is clearly contradictory to his context. By the way, this is the very difficult thing about being a Christian, is you're going to get a lot of data from the Word of God that will uh, will contradict whatever context you're living in. Uh, Whether it's this country or some other country, or this place in western Pennsylvania or somewhere else, it will always run concurrently in part the word of God will, to what you experience on a daily basis. And, uh, and so the psalmist says that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he will meditate day and night. And so what we really need if we are to survive the times and even thrive in the times is to listen to the right wisdom, the right wisdom, God-sourced wisdom, God-inspired wisdom. It's the only way to navigate the cultural rapids is to know your Bible. I really want to be that simple about it. If you really know your Bible— Uh, and you are able to integrate with the biblical material. If you uh, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the sacred text, you will be demonstrably helped in this life. You will be rooted in something substantial because you are therefore rooted in something that supersedes your own interests, proclivities, idiosyncrasies, and opinions. Because all those things are fine and good, but they're not ultimate. You You need to be rooted in something that is of ultimate consequence and vitality. Uh, And that's why we have something about the wisdom of God uh, in this passage. Now, notice, too, uh, the obsessive language of the blessed man, that he meditates on the word of God day and night, day and night. Um, What does that mean? Uh, That means that when he wakes up in the morning, he has a vision for the day that is inspired and in alignment with the revealed truth of God. And when he goes to bed at night, he's able to look back and review his day in light of the revealed Word of God. And if you live that way, where you wake up and you think, my life is not my own, Everything I have is a gift, and Christ is the center of my story. And if you end the day the same way, your life over time will be demonstrably uh, shaped and liberated in ways uh, that that multitudes will benefit from, including yourself. And so, uh, by the way, obsession can be very good. He's obsessed with the Word of God because it uh, possesses his mornings and his evenings. But obsession can be good so long as the object of your obsession is life-giving. Um, And this posture that the the word of God gives, right, that uh, creates a separation for the righteous man from the unrighteous um, is quite something to pay attention to. You know, Anglicanism uh, has a very beleaguered and complex history. Uh, One of the negatives about our tradition uh, is that we have tended, because of very complicated um, British historical reasons, to be the chaplains of culture. Uh, Throughout our history, especially especially in our mothership in England, uh, they tended to be rather shamanistic, that is, just to simply accompany culture in its various directives, hoping to slow it down slightly from time to time. But the danger is when your culture totally goes off the rails, the church tends to go off the rails with the culture when it's too wedded to it, yes? Well, this is why uh, Cardinal Newman, uh, I don't agree with him on everything, but he has this one line that I have often uh, given you, which is, to be a Christian is to oppose the world. To be a Christian is to oppose the world, to oppose the world within ourselves and to oppose the world around us that is dehumanizing us and others. And the only way you're going to be able to oppose the world and not walk or stand or sit with the world is to um, be rooted in an inspired text that gives you wisdom that supersedes the world's wisdom and your own instinctive wisdom that helps you see aright. Well, that's what it says in verse 2. And now, um, um, verse 3 through 5. And he shall become like a tree planted by the waterside that will bring forth his fruit in due season. His leaf also shall not wither, and look, whatever he does, it shall prosper. As for the ungodly, it is not so with them. They are like the chaff which the wind scatters away from the face of the earth. Now, here's the big contrast, right, between the effect of the righteous and the effect of the wicked, the future of the righteous and the future of the wicked. The righteous likened to a tree, an image of stability, right, because trees don't get up and move. They don't usually fall down easily. They tend to linger for a long time, and they endure, especially trees in weird weather, like western Pennsylvania weather, they tend to endure various harsh weather patterns, Now this tree is a smart tree, grows near water, it knows where it's fed. Um, It's fruitful, it doesn't dry out. In other words, uh, it it provides for others beside itself, so it's an image not only of stability and of longevity, it's it's an image of life-givingness, if you will. The fruit of a tree, after all, can produce more trees when that fruit lands on the ground um, and attaches to the soil. The wicked, quite the contrast. The wicked, chaff chaff what's chaff organic material that is intrinsically and eventually lifeless but it's the small husk that covers the uh, the covers grain it falls away at the harvest and then it is blown away rather easily like it's immaterial this text says blown away from the face of the earth in other words it's unstable it's unmonumented it's unremembered and what's the bible trying to teach us here that evil Evil is always 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 eventually self-discrediting and self-destructive Evil has no place in the eternal schematic it always loses always withers always chokes to death It has no future remember the end of the book of Revelation It doesn't say that this thing will go on yin and yang forever It says at the end of Revelation that heaven conquers all heaven rules heaven wins God wins and so those are the results for the righteous, that they're stabilized, rooted, strong, stronger than they would be otherwise, and the wicked, chaff, memorialless. So I just want to note with you, for example, uh, I want to give you an example. Note the power of a blessed life, of a blessed man or a blessed woman, because even within a world of enticements and sin, we can be Blessed favored, functioning as we ought to function, in that Edenic mode of being from time to time. Uh, how? By consecrating our ears to the word of God and receiving a wisdom that is superior to our own and living out of that wisdom. Uh, and eventually, that inf- that, its influence will root us and make us fruitful. And the example of this uh, is Rosa Parks. I, I've never thought that in uh, a sermon I would quote Oprah Winfrey. I have nothing against her. I just happen to disagree with her theology from time to time. Um, but uh, she spoke beautifully at, Rosa, uh, uh, at a memorial service for, for Rosa Parks. A beautiful eulogy. And these are the words that she wrote um, and spoke about Rosa Parks, who, of course, very famously wouldn't give up her seat on the bus to a white man. She wrote, So I thank you again, Sister Rosa, for not only confronting the one white man whose seat you took, not only for confronting the bus driver, not only for confronting the law, but conf- for confronting a history, a history that for 400 years said that you were not even worthy of a glance. I thank you for not moving. Note that last line I thank you for not moving for having the courage not to move. Well, she was rooted in the truth of God about human dignity, and therefore that influenced her action, which in turn changed the course of our nation. Now, this passage begins with the words about a blessed man, a blessed man who was not moved from the way of righteousness, a blessed man who was not tempted and lured by darkness, but instead became strong and life-giving. Here's my question. Are you this blessed man? Am I? Are you that woman? Is it you? Is it your impeccable life that you read in the words of this psalm? I mean, maybe sometimes. But friends, we are often quite chaff-like, maybe more than we'd like to admit, influenced by fury, influenced by hysteria, influenced by the mania of our times, reactive, hypercritical, controlled by the whims of a mob. The good news of this text is the blessed man exists. He's just not you. The blessed man exists, but he's not us. It's him. It's the son of man. It's Jesus. By the way, he seemed to think so as well. Because in Luke chapter 24, the risen Jesus gives a hermeneutic that is a way of understanding the Bible to his disciples. And he says about the Old Testament, not the New that hadn't been written, that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled in him that the Psalms all have an urgency and outstretched arms waiting to embrace someone else, someone to fulfill all of the prayers and petitions and cries from the Psalter. And it's Jesus. Jesus alone walked among the ungodly, the sinful, and the scornful, and remained utterly undeterred by their dark counsel. Jesus alone obeyed the Mosaic law of the Lord, all 613 commands of it, and fulfilled it flawlessly. Jesus was like the tree established and strong and fruitful, filling the world with unappreciated goodness. And in fact, that same Jesus died upon a tree so that the dry, cursed, chaff-covered world would be made new through his redeeming love. Psalm 1 begins with a blessing. Blessed is the man. Well, the good news of the gospel is that man most certainly exists, and that man is Jesus. Our lives are rooted in the deeds of that Messiah. He is the one who makes us blessed. He makes us strong. He makes us stable. He makes us fruitful, and he makes us endure. When I, from this lofty pulpit, look out at you, I see an oasis. I do. I see an oasis of fruitful trees. Beautiful trees, rooted trees. I love being your rector. I always have, and I love seeing what God is doing in your lives, and it is clear as crystal to me. But we are only fruitful, beautiful, and rooted because of him, our true tree of life at the very center of reality. Blessed is the man, blessed is that man, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.